From a wide range of embroidery classes to talks and special events, Royal School of Needlework's International Summer School offers so much. Immerse yourself in the world of the RSN with its world-renowned tuition and treat yourself to this Festival of Stitch in July and August 2024. The Royal School of Needlework is offering four ways to get involved this year. You can join the International Summer School on-site at Hampton Court Palace and at the Royal School of Needlework Durham in the UK, as well as Lexington, Kentucky in the United States of America. There are also online classes available live so students can join in anywhere from around the world. There's a wonderful variety of techniques to explore for those who are starting out on their hand embroidery journey all the way through to advanced stitches. So whether you want to follow a kit-based design, explore your own creativity using your own materials in a more contemporary way, or focus on developing your personal design skills, there will be a class that appeals to you. The Royal School of Needlework International Summer School classes will provide experienced stitchers with an opportunity to engage in a longer or more advanced project while allowing those newer to the world of hand embroidery to try a shorter course to build and develop their skills. The full list of classes and more information about the Royal School of Needlework International Summer School is available at royal-needlework.org.uk with special offers for booking multiple classes and an early bird booking price available until the 29th of February 2024. Whether you're planning on attending in person, online, or a combination of the two, this is a fantastic opportunity to improve your stitching skills from one of the best schools in the world. Welcome to Needle Exchange, conversations on the art of thread. Meredith Woolnuff is an Australian machine embroidery artist whose organic creations are instantly recognisable and simply stunning. Meredith's art pieces are a celebration of the beauty of nature and at the same time a technical marvel. We talk about her passion for science and nature, the pleasure she gets from teaching and how her work is much like darning. If you love artists who use machine embroidery to make magic, then please share this episode with your friends and fellow crafters. Needle Exchange is on a mission to bring textile art to the masses, and by sharing the show, you really help that cause. Enjoy the show. Because the thing, the thing I noticed was actually, I think your first blog post was like in 2010, and you did the Red Coral series in that year as well yeah that was that's really taking me back I've been doing this for a long time in very much the same vein I'm kind of a bit obsessed with it and I don't know I don't think that's a bad thing yeah I went back through your blog and there were two things that uh stuck out to me one was that I wrote an article about you in Fiber Arts Now magazine and I want to say that was like 2015 or something it was a long time ago now but what was funny was I saw the cover and then I was like oh my god I totally remember that now, all of a sudden. That was a fun time. I think you were quite pleased with what I wrote. I was always quite nervous. You wrote a lovely article, actually. And I think you wrote about it in ways that I'm like, oh, my God, I feel like you see what I'm trying to do. It's very validating because I'm not always that great writing myself and I'm never very good about writing about myself. So when someone writes about you and you're like, yeah, good, someone's getting it. It's always very satisfying. So thank you. 
that's always a relief as well because i i'm like i come from a position of no art education when i was a kid my dad taught at like our upper school and my art teacher used to tell me how she used to bounce me on her knee when i was a baby and for that reason i didn't do any art <laughs> at any point after a certain choice so so i'm like a lot of the time i'm just a total charlatan so then if I'm able to write about someone, if I'm able to talk about someone and they're happy with it, it is a great personal relief to me because it almost feels like I've got a vague idea what I'm on about. I mean, I think you have more than a vague idea. I think you are actually quoted on the back of my book for memory as well. I think when the publishers brought my book out, they went scouring for quotes and pulled one of yours out. And so I think you're officially in print on the back of my book. So there you go. <laughs> Is that the organic embroidery one or the 100 embroidery? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the 100's a new one. No one's quoted on that one yet. Um, yeah, mm. the organic embroidery. Yeah, I've got a copy of that downstairs. I should have brought it up. I should have got you to sign it over the internet somehow. <laughs> Air sign it. <laughs> yeah. So then, so yeah, so I span back to the beginning of your blog and then that started in 2010. And then you did your Red Coral series at that time. And I, was that when this all began? I think it really did. I think, well, if there was a starting point, I sort of pursued this type of embroidery when I was at uni and really developed a lot of the ways that I liked to work. And then I took a bit of a break from it and I was teaching full time. I went on and did teaching following my fine art degree. And, but while I was teaching, I was still sort of exhibiting on the side and I had one exhibition where I stitched small coral studies. Um, there were nine of them and in my favorite embroidery hoop, which I still use to this day. So a lot of my coral studies are still that exact same size. And that was really pivotal for me because a stranger bought my artwork. It was the validating moment where someone that you don't know, that's not your mum or your friend or your auntie, is happy to part money to put my artwork up on their wall. And that was very lovely. And then as a result of that show, I was asked to be part of a smaller group exhibition. And for that exhibition, I had more wall space. So I created the Red Coral series. So that was like the name suggests. It wasn't a very big series. There were probably oh, half a dozen pieces, but all red coral embroidery, some of a much larger scale than I'd ever worked before. And uh, it's funny because those images of the red coral series, for one, they're terrible photographs because I didn't know what I was doing. I was very much a baby fledgling art artist trying to figure out how to photograph this very challenging type of artwork. And But because they're some of the earliest pictures of my work, they're also the ones that seem to have like permeated Google. So they still come up in searches if you look up my name, even though they're terrible photographs. But yeah, it's sort of funny to see the full history. And now, well, if that was back in 2015, which, yeah, it sounds about right. Now almost, well, what's that, 13 years later? Is that right? Or more than that? I don't even know. Yeah. I'm still very much working in the same way. I'm still stitching coral. A lot of it's still red. Mm, yeah. And there's, I don't know, that's, you're like the queen of that thing. There are no other people I see doing the same <laughs> thing as you. I mean, I guess you're inspiring people because you teach that technique, correct? Yes, correct. So I definitely, well, that's one thing that's great about it. Yeah, I'm probably definitely known for my coral and leaves and there's there's very particular uh, types of artwork that I like to create, very particular subject matter that I keep coming back to. But the technique itself is so versatile because you're essentially creating an embroidery in air. It doesn't need a base cloth. It starts with a base cloth, of course, but that base cloth is water-soluble fabric. So it disappears 
and then you're just left with whatever you stitched that drawing that you made so you can kind of stitch anything you like and then you can shape and mold it and it's very sculptural so there's so much you can do with it so while of course I teach it because technically there's a lot that I've figured out along the way that makes this process easier to do or more successful because most people who try it for the first time just hate it they just it all falls apart and it turns into a big gluey mess and they're really disappointed with their work and I of course did all of that as well I've made all the mistakes possible but when I teach it you know I'm largely teaching like this is the way that I go about it technically but I'm not teaching people to make copies of my artwork I'm teaching people to take on these skills learn from my mistakes and shortcut their own journeys with it and then hopefully they take it off in their own direction and they do some of the things that my students come up with just blow me away it's so satisfying and there's obviously because it's free machine embroidery at its fundamental isn't it but obviously it's structural and I guess that's the difference isn't it is the ability to create form just using the stitches can you tell me about that yeah sure can so like you said free motion embroidery or freehand machine embroidery same thing essentially drawing with your sewing machine so very basic technique really it's just fancy darning if we're getting down to it, stripping the machine back. So it's just that needle flying up and down. Very basic. That's why you can do it on any machine. That's what's so good about it. And then normally when you do free motion embroidery or darning, you know, you're you're stitching onto fabric. But the fabric that I stitch onto is water-soluble fabric. Now, water-soluble fabric is really traditionally used as a stabilizer if you're doing machine embroidery, but I'm using it as a base fabric all on its own. And that's what allows me to create all these sculptural structural things and talking about the structure of things the biggest lesson if you're going to work on water soluble fabric is it's a temporary surface it's going to go away so whatever you stitch has to hold together on its own it needs to stand on its own two feet essentially when you take that base fabric away because otherwise it's just all going to fall apart so you really need to keep that in mind when you're working and you really need to understand the structure that you're building and be very careful about all of your connections and things like that so you don't have any disasters once you get it wet, so to speak. Yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? I guess there's always that nervous moment where you dissolve the fabric and then you hope that it doesn't just fall into a big pile, presumably. Well, yeah, (laughs) there is. I actually find that dissolving moment, that's the magic moment. That's when the embroidery comes to life. You know, it's essentially liberated from its base cloth and you just watch it dissolve away in an instant and it's really quite magic but yes if you didn't have it well connected that's also when disaster strikes and i guess then the the intricacy comes from how fine a piece of machine work you can make and it still has that structural integrity because some of your stuff is super complex Yes, it is. But it's also, I think I play with scale a lot. I know if I want a nice solid line, a line that's going to hold up on its own and be kind of, you know, strong and structural, I know the minimum line, thickness of line that I can stitch that will still do that job. So if I want to have a really complex design, I'll generally just stitch it really big. So if it's something like a leaf skeleton, that's really fine, lots of internal veins within a leaf, even though the leaf specimen might fit in the palm of my hand, the final embroidery might be over a meter wide and on the wall because I've enlarged it so I can get all the detail in the structure while still having the structural integrity in the embroidery itself. Ah, see, that's the trick. I think that Instagram sized pictures, you're just like, how has she done that? It's only five inches wide. It's like, <laughs> no, it's substantial. Most people who see my work for the first time find me online. You know, at the end of the world, social media gets our stuff to all corners of the world. 
and they see this picture that just exists on its own without context and they just automatically assume it's a certain size or it's made of something and then when they see the real thing it's so different and it's quite nice really because so many people who have seen my work entirely from photographs online even images of framed work or works in progress when they get in front of the real thing it's so different to what they imagined and often in a good way they're always like oh it's so much more detailed than I thought or it's so much bigger than I thought or it's so much more delicate or more beautiful or more vibrant it just goes to show like experiencing something in the flesh is still so different and often so much better in many ways than all these beautiful images we see online out of context and in some ways that serves the purpose because your work identifies the beauty in nature and some of like the substrate beauty in nature and then to make it large scale amplifies that doesn't it gives people a chance to pay attention to these things that we otherwise just breeze on past every day Yes, absolutely. I think if there's a goal of my work, other than, I guess, bringing people joy um, and making beautiful things that people want to look at, if people can see my work and it makes them curious, it makes them wonder, it makes them ask questions about what it is that I've made, how I've made it, and more specifically, what it's inspired by, then I kind of feel like it's done its job. I think when, like you said, these simple things that we might pass over all the time. It might be a weed in our garden or a house plant that we haven't really looked at closely. And when I present it as this giant embroidery that just focuses on the vein structure of a leaf that I found in my garden, that encourages people then to maybe look a little bit closer around their own environment and learn to love and appreciate it all a little bit more. So yeah, I think that's a hugely important part of the work. If my work makes people look around them a little bit closer, then I've done my job. And you've also been involved in like legit biology projects. I'm sure I've seen stuff where you've worked with like horticultural organisations. Indirectly, I think I've been lucky to be involved in some exhibitions that have connections to the scientific community and sort of botanical gardens and things like that. So I love anything that brings art and science together. I'm a bit of a science nerd and in my own research of my work, I really like to know all I can about the particular organism that I'm studying, even though that's probably not necessary to produce a nice embroidery. But it's important to me and I think it's important to the work overall. I did a project, I don't know, after COVID, all the years just smushed together, where I worked with a scientist who studies cells. I was paired with a scientist to do an artwork in response to her work and it was the microscopic embryonic cell structures which is so different from me and was actually quite intimidating but it was so great to work with her and to learn from a scientist and learn a bit about her work and what she's all about and then interpret that as an artwork it was it was a wonderful project overall yeah were you interested in this stuff when you were growing up were you a bit of a sciencey kid I think so yeah I've always grown up with I think an appreciation of nature we were always quite outdoorsy as a family we were always camping and things like that and and you know always bringing home pockets full of rocks and leaves and gum nuts there was always that interest and it was always encouraged so yeah that's always been there and then it was really I did a natural history illustration degree when I moved up here to Newcastle about 10 years ago and for me that was the perfect amalgamation of art and science again it was a wonderful art focused degree that 
mixed in with all that natural history science stuff that I loved. So it just put me together with people that were obsessed with fungus and native plants and whatever else. So that was a wonderful environment and a wonderful community to kind of be a part of. I sort of felt like I found my people, a little like plant and animal nerds. And that was a, a very nice thing to be a part of. So that's really informed my practice over the last decade, for sure. I did an interview with Kath Janes and she does anatomical embroidery so like cross sections of human anatomy and she's gained some recognition within the if you like anatomical illustration realm because you know and it's interesting because her work has almost like an infographic purpose because it's looking at things using false color to highlight different structures and it feels like in some ways yours is similar because you're these aren't necessarily whimsical creations are they you're trying to accurately reproduce these organisms in some cases yes in some cases i definitely see them as stitched specimens some are very realistic so some of my leaf structures i've literally mapped out individual leaves and then recreated that design and embroidery some are a little bit looser than that some are more inspired by my study of the patterns that I identified in certain structures particularly with coral I have pieces like I have a solo exhibition that I'm working towards at the moment that's entirely coral focused as you can see I'm still very stuck (laughs) in the coral (laughs) and some of those pieces are very very true to a particular not particular species but a particular genus of coral so that those particular structures that are found and very true to those so they're really stitched studies of those particular types of coral fans but others when you draw something for so long and you become so familiar with its structure I can draw coral in my sleep now (laughs) certain structures and sometimes that's just really nice to do so there are definitely designs of mine that are just you know almost invented coral structures but if you looked at them you definitely identify them as coral because I've spent so much time working with that and they definitely have that flavor to them so my work's a bit of a mix there are some that are quite scientifically accurate I suppose you could say in some areas and others are uh, have a little bit more artistic license do you have certain organisms that bring you joy to make? Do you have favorite ones to make because of maybe the way they're made or the way you can apply colors to them or, you know, ones that really shout out at you? Yes, definitely. So color is, is interesting, interesting that you mentioned color. Color, like so many artists, is something that we're all drawn to. And quite often I will choose to study something because of its color. So I did a, a number of series of leaf skeletons that were entirely inspired by the color of those leaves. So some of the begonia leaves and things like that. I also did a whole series of eucalyptus, small studies that all came together in sort of a a muted rainbow entirely based off the the colors of fallen eucalyptus leaves, the ones you picked up off the ground because it's literally like a sort of a slightly muted rainbow on the ground under pretty much any eucalyptus tree I tend to find here in Australia. And I just found that to be so incredibly beautiful. So created a whole series that just looked at color. So those are things that come out to me. But then when it comes to other organisms, obviously coral is a big one, in particular coral fans, largely because they're a structure that lend themselves very well to my type of embroidery. Like we mentioned earlier, you have to have a structure that's going to hold together well on its own. And a lot of my works are framed and I have a particular method for mounting them. So they sort of appear to be floating like a little stitched specimen in the frame. And things like coral fans are generally very flat structures naturally. So they lend themselves really well to my type of artwork. So I go back to them again and again. 
And then also there's some shelled organisms, particularly I have a bit of an obsession with cephalopods that have shells. So cephalopods are like our octopuses and our cuttlefish and our nautilus. So any of those three cephalopods that have shells, and I have created studies on all three of them because I just find them to be so wonderfully weird. And uh, yeah, so those are things I come back to again and again. So the nautilus is obviously the most well-known one. Everyone knows what a nautilus shell is and that's beautiful. I've done studies of the outside patterning of the shells and the internal structure. An argonaut is another one uh, that's also sometimes referred to as the paper nautilus. Actually, a little octopus and the female creates this amazingly delicate egg case that it's called a paper nautilus because it's fine and thin like paper that she uses to as a brood chamber to keep her eggs in. Really fascinating animal. And then the third one that's one that people don't really know about very much is a little tiny squid, a deep sea squid that's called Spirula spirula. That's its scientific name. So good they named it twice. And these shells are these little spiraled shells that you'll often find washed up on the beach. And I used to find them on the beach all the time and they look like a broken shell because it's literally a spiral that just ends. But it's again a little buoyancy device, an internal buoyancy device inside this tiny little squid. And again, I've done embroideries based on those beautiful structures. So I'm pretty obsessed with those animals. So happy to always revisit those. Ah, that was so good. That was so good, honestly. But because then you get into sort of the mathematical region as well, don't you? Because there's a lot of like naturally occurring, I'm thinking like Fibonacci, those kind of like the the relationships that nature produces, presumably that's something you're quite aware of now as well. Yes, definitely aware of. It's not something that I map out in my work, but it's there indirectly. Anytime that you study the chambers in a Nautilus shell, for example, there's that uh, golden mean ratio magic happening. So yes, it's something, it's, it's a wonderfully beautiful, satisfying shape. So, you know, that's why so many artists love to explore it, myself included. Because without wishing to get too like metaphysical, sometimes people think that there's no like meaning to life or, you know, we're just random bits of chaos. But for instance, I don't know if you know Romanesco broccoli, like the mathematically perfect vegetable where each piece is like a fractal of itself. You know, that kind of stuff. I'm just like, well, if you want proof that there's some kind of God, there's a mathematically perfect <laughs> broccoli for you. Yeah, it's in your lunch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's some wonderful things like that. Yeah, and that's just it. There's so many fabulous things. You don't, you can go past the humble broccoli and find mathematical perfection. It's yeah, there's so many wonderful things out there to explore. And I think as artists, it's often our job to you know remind people of those things and make them aware of it. And yeah. So then you did your first book, Organic Embroidery, which is very much a this is what I do, this is how I do it, shadow mounting, gaze upon the magnificence of all of this. Then the 100 Embroideries Project was an evolution of that. Can you explain more about that? Yeah, so the, the two books are very different. So like you mentioned, Organic Embroidery is really a, a snapshot of my practice from sort of start to finish, my field work through to how I embroider things and sort of little uh, case studies of pivotal artworks along the way or ones that I've made up until when I produced it. Uh, the 100 Embroideries Project is more of a it's really almost like a glorified catalogue of my last solo exhibition. So in 2020, you know, pivotal year for many of us, midst of COVID and I had a solo exhibition booked in and I decided that I wanted to create 100 embroideries. I wanted to take on that task because I had that deadline of the exhibition. My second daughter was also due uh, at exactly the same time as the exhibition. So I had these looming deadlines. Yeah. 
but I wanted to uh, do something different. And I sort of found that I was really stuck in my ways. Like I've mentioned, I'm known as the person who stitches coral and the person who stitches leaves. And I was almost sort of typecast in the work I was creating and the commissions that people were asking for. And I'd sort of lost that playfulness and that spontaneity that came from just getting in and making things. So I wanted to try and pull that back. So I was like, I'm going to make 100 embroideries for this exhibition. And, you know, that was a pretty mammoth task. You know, I had to bring out, I think, two or three a week to keep on track. And of course, you know, made myself accountable by posting them on social media every couple of days. But it was a really great project for me (laughs) because it did allow me to free up. I just had to get in and make something. And there's definitely a lot of coral and a lot of leaves and a handful of shells in the series. But there's also a lot of things that I just wouldn't have really given myself the time or space to create otherwise. I went back to old sketchbooks and, you know, was just exploring new ideas. There's just some playful pieces that are just literally rainbow, colorful circles and things like that. So that was the the project, these hundred pieces that all came together for this big exhibition. And it was hugely popular. You know, I had lots of cheer squads cheering me on throughout the year as I made the 100 pieces and then the show sold out in like record time. It was kind of insane, particularly since my daughter arrived three days before the exhibition opened. She came a little ahead of schedule. So I was in hospital like while all this stuff was going on. It was very surreal. But uh, yeah, it was such a pivotal exhibition and so many people loved it that I decided to yeah, bring it all back together essentially in a book. So the book's just like a lovely little hardcover book. The pieces are pretty much printed to scale, a bit of an essay about what the exhibition was and why it was so important to me. And yeah, it's been a really great project to be a part of. And I sort of hope that moving forward, if I have future exhibitions, like I said, I've got one later this year, I will eventually create books to kind of go with them. It will be a bit of a collectible series. So that's the, the lofty goal. But yeah, I'm really happy with how this first one's come out. It's um, a lovely little printed treasure. Yeah, it's a really good documentary of the process. And I admire the fact that you managed to do it. I love because sometimes when people are pregnant, there's a sort of nesting instinct that kicks in. Like people who are capable of amazing things during pregnancy. And I love the fact that you managed to like bang out a hundred embroideries within that time period as well. It was pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's like this looming deadline. And, and it was my second, so I knew what I was in for. I knew that, you know, I was about to have a whole lot of no sleep. So if I wanted to get anything done, it had to happen before baby day. So, yeah. <laughs> How do you juggle, like, the being a parent, being an artist, being a normal human being kind of thing? <laughs> as best I can. It is definitely a juggle. I think like anything, it's just a matter of doing what you can and prioritizing what's important. I'm lucky to have a hugely supportive partner who, you know, is very much believes in what I'm doing as an artist and is very supportive of that. And I'm also lucky to have three days of daycare. <laughs> so basically on my daycare days, <laughs> I work and the other days are filled with family and swimming lessons and play dates and and all the usual mum things, and then you just fit life and yourself around in the little gaps that you can find around all of that. Yeah, I mean, a similar boat, I guess, because actually I think your oldest daughter is about the same age as my oldest daughter. I've got a six and a four-year-old. And I think there is something about it's nice to have the time to be there and hang out in these moments before, like, society takes away their innocence and then they hate you for, like, eight years or however it goes. Oh, yes, I know. A hundred percent. I feel incredibly lucky to have the flexibility that 
I suppose, being self-employed like this presents. So, for example, today my daughter is in kindergarten at first year of school and today was 100 days of kindergarten. And, of course, they had a special assembly and invited the parents in, but I only found out about it yesterday because, you know, the school's not that great at (laughs) communicating or maybe I'm not that great at reading all the memos. But, you know, I have the flexibility that I was able to just be like, yeah, okay, shuffle things around and go into the studio a little bit later, but could come and watch her, you know, sing the song and get the certificate on stage and then do the craft activities with her in class. It's really special. It is a special time. And she's still very excited to see me there. So, yeah, I guess I should uh, hold on to that for as long as I can. So have you got a separate studio then? You work in a separate space to at home? Yeah, definitely. I learned quite early on that I don't work well from home. I just get too distracted by home and life and the washing and and everything else. So I need to go to work. So I've had a studio out of home for at least the last eight years. I used to be in a a sort of a community art space, uh, which was amazing. It was great to be surrounded by other artists because, you know, artist life is pretty lonely. You're pretty introverted so it's nice to feel like you have kind of colleagues in the job but unfortunately like so many of those community spaces it was owned by the council and they sold the building so since then I've in the last five or so years I've now got my own space that I rent on my own and it's great it's great to go into work every day it's great to close the door at the end of the day and just know everything's there and not going to be disturbed by a kid or a cat or anything like that. <laughs> and how what kind of machines do you use like what kind of setup do you have do you have multiple machines because i guess your pieces are quite large so you must need a fair bit of space to maneuver and stuff yeah so i do have a number of machines but probably not as many as you think so this type of work can be done on any machine any domestic sewing machine and i used to work on a very old machine older than me a very small basic one and it could still do very large pieces but i have upgraded since then so i mostly work on a, a long arm machine So it's a Bonina Q20, fabulous machine. So the 20 cents are 20 inches. So it's got a really deep head. It's made for quilting and all it does is freehand. All it does is freehand straight stitch. So it's just, it does exactly what I need it to do and it does it really well. And obviously it is a big table. So I've got plenty of space to move and spread out and put all my threads and everything like that. The only downside of it is that it only does straight stitch. So on the odd occasion that I'll need to do a different kind of stitch. So one of my designs, for example, I like to do a fine zigzag. I'll need to jump over to another machine then. And the machine that I tend to work on the most is another Benina machine. I love those. It's a 735. So it is a bigger machine, again, a bit more space to move. So they're the two main machines that I work on. And the 735 is what I'll take to workshops or things like that. Obviously, I can't take the giant long arm to workshops, but that's it. Yeah. But people see that big machine and think, oh gosh, you know, it's this big fancy machine. And they think the machine does all the sewing for me. They think my work is pre-programmed. And and then I'm like, no, no, it's just me moving that hoop around, just drawing with my sewing machine, just drawing in a weird way. Do you use any special thread or anything? No, just uh, good quality machine embroidery threads. Quality is obviously important so they don't snap every two seconds and drive you crazy. But, you know, thread choice is entirely personal depending on the kind of the finish that you want. But, yeah, there's nothing fancy about my threads. Threads, sorry to disappoint, they're just standard machine embroidery threads. <laughs> it's just the conduit for your art and your art is the thing that creates the beauty that makes us all cry. It's with- my palette. <laughs> true, true. I do have lots of nice colours, which is important because I really like to blend them. When you work, do you have music on? Do you work in silence? Do you take regular breaks? Do you do yoga? 
a little bit of all of the above. So I can't work in silence. I go crazy. I just like will play the same like four bars of a song over and over in my head. So I do tend to listen to podcasts or audio books when I'm working. And that's great because I can get lost in a story while I'm working and my hands are just kind of doing one thing and my brain's doing another. I do try to take breaks because, you know, sitting in one position, particularly hunched over a sewing machine, no matter how well you've got it set up ergonomics wise, still takes its toll. So I do take breaks and stretch and and all of that sort of stuff. Otherwise I get very stiff and sore. And that's actually one of the reasons why I ended up investing in the long arm machine because ergonomically it is just so much better of a setup than what I had on the domestic machine because with a normal domestic machine, because of the way it's set up, you know, it's designed so that you just need to see what's right in front of the needle as you're feeding fabric through it. But with freehand work, you're drawing and you want to see all around the needle. And sometimes it's hard to do that with the head of the sewing machine in the way. So I used to find I used to always stitch with my neck on a funny angle so I could see more. I get these horrible neck pains and I'm like, I'm not old enough to have a messed up neck. So I, one of the reasons for investing in the long arm was because it's so much bigger and the head's so much higher, there's so much more space around it. I can see so much more. And as a result, I can stitch for so much longer. I can work for so much longer without getting sore, but regular breaks are important. I think that whenever I've spoken to students, usually, you know, late teens, early twenties, I'm always like, please start stretching now. Please get up and look out of the window every 20 <laughs> minutes, you know, for the love of God, don't get knackered like the rest. It's quite easy, isn't it? Yeah, don't get, don't get hunched over. Oh, absolutely. And when I teach at workshops, I'm very big on like stopping everyone. And like, I call on their turkey stretches because I have a number of little exercises that I talk people through and we end up flapping around and doing weird things with our necks and looking like a turkey, really. So very important. And yeah, I think that's good advice to give everyone because we're all a bit creaky in our old age when we're dedicated to our crafts that involve our eyes and our hands. And you've done quite well with online courses, right? One of your like product ranges is online courses for people to learn the technique. How much in real life or like, you know, over Zoom kind of teaching stuff do you also do? Yeah, I online courses was a game changer for me in terms of the viability of my art business. So I've taught this type of embroidery for well over a decade in workshops and I, I like to think I'm really good at that. So it was very natural for me to move online. And again, birth of my children, I just couldn't travel as much as I used to. So started doing online teaching. I, I have a free course that people can enroll in at any time, which is a great little intro. And then I have my sort of signature course, if you call it that, which is my sculptural embroidery course, which I run twice a year. And I run it twice a year because when I teach it, even though it's all pre-recorded video lessons, I um, you know, set aside, it's released over six weeks, and I set aside those six weeks to solidly help people through it. And there are live Q&A sessions as those six weeks go through and a little bit after. So there's still a lot of interaction and feedback and help. And the reason I only run it twice a year is because it takes up so much of my energy for the two months that it runs that I just can't really do much else. So it's like I teach for those, you know, four months of the year, essentially, on my online courses, and the rest of the time I'm able to actually make the work and make my own work and fill in commissions and everything like that. But the online courses have been amazing because before, if people wanted to learn from me, one, they needed to be able to get to one of my workshops, most of which were in Australia, and they had to be available at that particular time. And I had so much interest from all over the world. And now that I'm online, people are taking my course from all over the world. It's 
phenomenal where people come from and, and how many people take it and how people take it on. So it's been amazing. And it's also been great to build up the online community because the difference between, I think, an online course and a workshop, a workshop, you turn up, you do the workshop, you try and cram all the information into your brain, and then you walk away with your head spinning and you might not look at it again for six months, then you can't remember what to do and whatever. But with the online course, there's the community and there's the ongoing I suppose, and being able to go back. So there's, you know, we've got a big Facebook group for all the people who've taken the course and they're just amazing. And they're, it's so supportive. And I feel like, yeah, you get so much more out of it. Surprisingly, I didn't think that people would get as much out of an online course as they did compared to an in-person one. But yeah, it seems such a rich experience. It's, it's been nothing but positive from my side, at least. Yeah. And then to what extent do you use social media to promote yourself like do you have successes with certain platforms you've talked about online communities and obviously I guess some of those are quite specific platforms but which do you have favorite platforms do you not bother with some are you TikToking? how does it all go I think I'm too old for TikTok. I think I've missed that boat I'm very big I'm very big on Instagram and Facebook are probably the two that I focus on Instagram in particular I've just found works well with my work and I've got a bit of traction there and it's again a nice community there and then also Facebook kind of feeds off that kind of the two giants like I have a Pinterest account and a little bit of a YouTube account but that's not where my energy goes definitely those two big ones big for me and they are hugely important for me they're a huge part of me getting my work out there and people discovering me and things like that so I think I do probably owe a fair chunk of my success to those platforms and the energy we put into them I mean, I think as it works really well for you because although Instagram prefers video content, your work is so arresting that it really pops out of any kind of feed that you look at. So I'd imagine you must get a lot of people discovering you for the first time on a fairly frequent basis and then gushing down the internet at you. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I think so. It's so hard, you know, with all the algorithms and everything, you can never predict it. But I think, yes, my work is different and yet quite visually striking. And people aren't, again, people aren't sure what they're looking at. They see it and they don't know what it is. Even I had a video recently that went really big, you know, millions of views and all that crazy stuff. And it's just me dissolving it. It's a big red coral fan. Surprise, surprise. There's a red coral again. <laughs> big red coral fan. But the amount of comments that people are seeing it and they're like, it looks like lungs. It looks like a placenta. It looks like stuff from War of the Worlds movies. Like everyone sees different things in it. And, and, you know, that's it. They, then they start asking questions and then it draws them in. And it's just that wonder and interest, particularly with social media, because quite often things will come up in your feed that you wouldn't normally find. And you're just like, what, what is that? Like, so the fact that my work is so different and maybe weird and not instantly recognizable as embroidery or anything else definitely works in my favor, for sure. Gets eyeballs on my work anyway. And then... So the layers of your business, because this is something that I don't think we talk about very often, but you, so you sell art pieces, you sell prints, you sell books, you sell online courses, and then you also do commissions. Is that sort of the how the layer cake works? Yeah. So probably if you're talking income, which again, people don't talk about very much, do they? My biggest income is my online courses, definitely. And then sale of my artwork and commissions. 
And then I do have the books. The books are in many ways more of a marketing tool than anything else. Mm. You know, you make very little money from books, <laughs> unfortunately, but I think it's a really important thing to do. I don't really sell prints of my work. I have brought out the occasional print to go with different exhibitions. So I did have a print of the 100 Embroideries Project, for example, but that's not a big thing for me. And then to a very minor point, occasionally there'll be things like licensing of images for use on book covers or or things like that. But that's more of a, a minor thing. So yeah, definitely the teaching, both workshops and online courses, commissions, artworks, book sales. How does the commissioning work? Because I mean, are, are people asking for organic things from you? Or could I say, oh, can you do me the Pepsi logo? Well, it all depends, doesn't it? So I think people who come to me for commissions come to me because they like my work and they like particular things that I do and they want, you know, some version often of something that I've created before or, you know, some interpretation of something that's very much in my world. It's unusual for someone to come and ask for something like the Pepsi logo because that's not what I do and it's probably not what I do well. And I'm very honest with people and I even say on my commissions page, like I won't just take on anything because if I don't think I can do it well or if I can do it justice or I can't, it's not something that applies well to my particular medium because it's very particular things that work well with this and there's probably a lot of things that don't work well with it. And I'm very aware of that knowing the possibilities and limitations of my medium and what I do. So I'm very honest with people. I did have someone once who asked me if I could do a portrait of their dog very early on and I was just like, no, I, I just don't think I could do that well, but thank you. So yeah, most people who come to me for commissions come because they love what I do and they're often wonderful to work with. They're very trusting of what I do. I've only maybe had one or two that were, you know, needed a bit of education along the way, I suppose. But I have a huge, I have a three-year wait list at the moment, which is insane. I actually feel bad that it's that long, but that's just the reality of it. I try to put aside at least a day a week to work on commissions. And a lot of the time I'm chipping away at them behind the scenes, depending on whether or not the person's comfortable with me sharing it on, at all, whether or not anyone will ever see them. Yeah, it's a fun process. It can be challenging sometimes. Sometimes it can push me in new directions because, you know, someone will want something that's in the realm of my work, but pushing it in a new direction. And sometimes that can be daunting. Sometimes that can be downright a headache, but often it, it ends up being a definitely a worthwhile journey to go on because even if things don't work out how you like, you discover a lot of things along the way. So. And I wondered that, and I wondered about the 100 embroideries as well, whether there were offshoots in different directions that are like piquing your curiosity, because you've been within the realm of organic structures for a long time. And I'm not saying you have to change from that, but I just wonder whether you can feel yourself being tugged in different directions. Oh, always. There's always too many ideas, never enough time. There are so many things that I would like to explore more. There are so many completely different areas that I would like to move in. But for me at the moment, you know, it's a real juggle, uh, particularly with the whole parenthood thing. At the end of the day, even though I think technically I'm working full-time, really I'm fitting a full-time job into part-time hours. So there's not a lot of playtime for me anymore. I'm either working towards a commission working towards a solo show where I literally just need to pump out work so I have enough to fill the gallery walls. And unfortunately, there's just not as much time for me to play and explore different areas at the moment. But that doesn't mean it won't happen in the future when I have more time. So I'm totally okay with that. And I'm still so in love with what I'm making right now. So 
I'm very fine with it. I'm very, I'm a very happy and contented artist. <laughs> do you have any crafty stuff that you do outside work? You know, at home, are you good at baking or gardening or painting, decorating? I would love to have more time for all those things. I am have an unhealthy obsession with some lotus plants that I have in my back courtyard. I live in a townhouse with the tiniest, tiniest courtyard, but I make the most of it. And yeah, I'm particularly obsessed with some of the plants that I grow there. And during the summer months, if you ever follow me on social media, there'll be almost daily updates on the flowers of the lotus plants because I'm just obsessed with it. So there's bits of that. (laughs) There's many other things that I love to explore. I do love to paint and draw. Again, it's just a time thing. Those things to do and to do well take a lot of time and I barely have time to, uh, you know, breathe and make dinner and clean the toilet. So, you know, if I can fit anything else in, it's a bonus. Nice. Do you have a favorite album? Yeah, you're really putting me on the spot with this. And I was thinking about it quickly. I was trying to think, I might not have a favorite album, but if there's ever artists that I can always come back to and always enjoy listening to, and this is going to be such an Aussie answer, but it's probably Crowded House. I just, you know, always have time for Crowded House. Always love, yeah. I saw them live a few years ago and they're just one that whenever one of their songs come on, you're just like, oh, I love this song. So, yeah, on the spot, they're, uh, yeah. Are they one of like, because the thing is, is obviously they're very well known globally and there are certain Australian bands that obviously break free. But like, I don't know, in the UK, we're quite lucky because we're a tiny island with like a billion different types of musical genres and various other things. So I just wonder whether... Is Australia like that or is it a bit more disparate? Are bands like Crowded House steadfast or are there like lots of scenes, but maybe you're just not in a position to tap into? Oh, no, there's so many scenes. We're huge with music here, I would definitely say. And there's so many different types of music that I listen to as well. Crowded House is probably really old and daggy now to be honest, (laughs) like you know, but hey, maybe I'm old and daggy and that's okay too. Do you find certain moods of music when you're working? Do you listen to certain types of music or does anything go? Or is it like dependent on the colours? Maybe you go a bit more like classical for certain types of work and a bit more, I don't know, breakbeat for others? Not really. I actually don't listen to much music at all in the studio. Um, like I said, if I'm listening to something, it's normally an audiobook or a podcast. Our music doesn't get much of a look in anymore. Yeah, that's a disappointing answer, isn't it? <laughs> We all like to say the artists sit there and listen to classical music. <laughs> <laughs> but what about podcast recommendations and what kind of stuff do you like to listen to? Oh, that's also a that's a big, deep, untapped well. I quite like the ones where I'm learning something. I always like to come home and be, learn about random things. One of my favorite podcasts is probably Ologies, which is done by a wonderful lady called Ali Ward. And so what she does is every episode she interviews a different ologist of some kind and you know it's this whole idea of asking smart people dumb questions and even though no matter what the topic is it might be something really random like ants it's still fascinating because you're talking to someone who's so passionate about what they do and loves it so much and you just can't get help caught up in their enthusiasm and even the most benign subject is fascinating when you get to the core of it so that's probably one of my favorites and one I recommend everyone listen to yeah, that's a great one. I like to listen to people talking when I'm either walking the dog or if I'm driving. If I have to do like mundane things then or admin, then people talking isn't too bad. But if I have to do anything that requires a bit of creative focus, then I have to kind of switch to music so that I don't get too pulled away from what I'm doing. Whereas I guess perhaps with yours, there's a certain automation to what you're doing so you can process what people are saying along the way. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So whether I'm drawing or stitching, 
uh, yeah, unless it's something I've really got to concentrate on, admin computer work. Yeah, podcast is great because sort of half my mind is busy with my hands and my eyes and then my brain is busy listening and absorbing whatever it is I'm listening to. Okay, favourite film? Favourite film, also a hard one. I'd probably go, and this might be unpopular, I really like Jurassic Park. It was one of those movies that I saw as a kid, terrified me, but also really made an impression. So yeah, I really like Jurassic Park. Go dinosaurs. My kids love dinosaurs too, so maybe that's why. You're going to be the eighth person I've interviewed in Needle Exchange, and Jurassic Park now represents 25% of all the film choices that people have made. No way! Really? Oh, that surprises me. Oh, well, there you go. It's obviously a mark of quality, that one. So... And then you are an avid reader, so book choices. This could be tricky. It's very tricky. It's very tricky. And I read a lot now. I'm part of a book club because that's how cool I am. But trying to think if I had a favorite book, again, like the crowded house thing, if there's a book I can always go back to and enjoy, and this is a very British one, I really like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's always just a light one. Gives you a giggle. Total escapism. I always like the, the Douglas Adams quote, I love deadlines. I love the whooshing noise they make when they go past. <laughs> yes. It's a shame, actually, because they didn't make, they made one Hitchhiker's film, didn't they, with Martin Freeman? But I don't think they ever followed up with the other books, did they? Which is a shame. No, I think they alluded to it. And I think it's always, it's a book that's so hard to reproduce in any way other than the book. And like any cherished book, no matter how well you make a movie out of it, it's always going to disappoint a lot of people. So, yeah, I know that the films kind of fell a bit flat, but, yeah, I think it's like any cult classic like that. Did you ever see the British TV version of Hitchhiker's Guide with, like, the Zayford Beeblebox with, like, the very much cardboard head? I've seen bits and pieces of it, but I've never sat down and put myself through it, probably on purpose. Yeah, I sort of remember when it came out over here and being, it was like impressive at the time, but it's definitely one of those ones where you're like, wow, CGI has really enabled a lot of that stuff. So Yeah, it's like the really early Doctor Who episodes that you look at now and you're just like, oh, what were they doing? <laughs> so charming. Or when you see a big spaceship just fly past and you can tell that that bit's a yogurt pot and that bit was probably from an airfix <laughs> kit of a plane or something and it's like, it's so difficult. Yeah. And then an interesting fact that maybe no one knows about you. Okay. Interesting fact that no one knows about me. I once had a summer job where I worked at Australia's Wonderland and I dressed up as Princess Fiona from Shrek for photo opportunities. So in almost 40 degree heat, I would put on a green velvet dress and a red wig and stand with my other completely suited characters, Shrek, Farquaad and Donkey and take photos with random people. So there are probably hundreds of children that have my mug on their childhood photo albums somewhere. And I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> Is there, so I've had the opportunity lately to be Santa at my kid's school. And I find being that kind of buoyant for that length of time, I'm quite good at it, but I find it very wearing. What's it like being a princess for like days on end? Pretty tiring. That one was tiring because yeah, you had to smile so much and be friendly and, and basically tell the kids to stop sitting on donkey because there's a person in it. And, you know, it was, but the way it was structured, it was kind of the weirdest job ever. You'd have like designated rest time. So you'd have an appearance and depending on the temperature of the day, the appearance would be shorter. So in the hot days, it would get shorter and shorter. So you'd have like a half an hour, 40 minute appearance 
And then you'd have literally an hour that was scheduled to just sit down and rest. So you'd do this little burst of time and then you'd rest and then you'd get dressed again and you'd do it all again. So it was sort of this weird day, a lot of sitting around in a shed full of costumes and then getting up and dressing as a princess and then doing it all over again four or five times a day. So it was a fun job. Also got to do some of the other like suited characters, you know, where you get dressed up as Fred Flintstone or something like that. And I actually enjoyed that a lot more because my face wasn't on show (laughs) and you could really have fun essentially miming being that character. And it was very fun. I'm not a particularly extroverted person, but you put me in a big costume like that. And I don't know, maybe you'll get people who really believe you won't you you'll get young enough children who are like oh my god that's the real deal yeah some of the kids are really really excited and come and give you a great big hug and and that's really nice but then there's also people that are not so nice I think a lot of people don't realize that these suited characters are often young small girls and you'll get people that will come up and like shake your hand but try and crush your hand or it never happened to me thank goodness But there were other people who'd be crash tackled to the ground by people and quite seriously hurt. So, yeah, some people were were real jerks to the suited characters, but it was really fun. And, yeah. If you ever go to a theme park and you were to see somebody in a suit, are you ultra sympathetic? Is there a little code phrases that you can, like, share to know that you're part of the the fraternity, (laughs) the sorority of it all? Oh, yeah, I, I can't give those secrets away. No. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> I am very sympathetic to the people in the suits, particularly because I know how hot they can be on a hot summer's day. So, yes, I take my hat off to anyone who does that job. I only did it for one one summer. That was enough for me, but it was good fun. Meredith, people want to find out about you. If they want to take your courses, if they want to gaze upon the awesomeness of it all, where should they go? Uh, people want to find out about me they really just need to know how to spell my name <laughs> on the internet if you put in Meredith Woolnuff I'll come up my website is just meredithwoolnuff.com.au I'm Meredith Woolnuff on Instagram Meredith Woolnuff artist on Facebook all of those things will point you in my direction do you know if there are any other Meredith Woolnuff not that I know of and if they are best of luck to them they got no chance you're the internet Meredith they're Warnock. not embroidery artists <laughs> <laughs> I think no, that's cool. Hey, Meredith, um, thanks for having a needle exchange with me. Been a blast. Ah, oh, bless you. Thanks for joining me on another needle exchange. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'd love to hear from you, so feel free to email hello at needle.exchange. That's N-W-E-D-L dot exchange with any thoughts, comments, or feedback. And if you want to keep up with all the news, sign up to the Needle Exchange mailing list at bit.ly, bit.ly forward slash needle exchange. See you next time.